Today's scripture is from Acts 12, 1 to 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish, Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be back in person. I love it. Personally, I'm still um, lingering over the songs that were sing this morning. It's just so good to be able to join you guys to worship together. It, I mean, like, worshiping online and worshiping by myself at home is great because Jesus gets praised no matter what. But just being in an atmosphere where there's people around, where there's voice around, the warmth, the energy, is just so good. Um, before I go right into the message for this morning, I just want to do a quick survey. So help me out. You don't have to do anything other than sit there and raise up your hand. But just out of curiosity, um, how many of you guys actually got more than eight hours of sleep last night? Um, just by a show of hands. Oh, wow. That's like less than 5%. Okay. Um, how many of us got more than six hours? Okay, not bad, not bad. How many of us got more than four? 
Okay, wow, still like only quite a bit. Did anybody like not sleep last night? I, I slept. Okay, good, okay. So we're sitting around like between four hours and then six hours and eight hours, which means I'll be a little bit more interactive slash a little bit more hype with the sermon. Um, I'm going to go right into it because today we're talking about the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. When, when Doug emailed me like a couple months back and said, hey, I will be preaching in the book of Acts in, uh, in April when you come. I'm like, yes, yes. Um, I love this book. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, do turn to the book of Acts. I will actually, thank you, Ashlyn, where is she? She like read through the whole chapter 12. Um, I'm actually only going to focus mainly on the first few verses. But do read through the whole chapter because it's, it's powerful. It's God doing what he could do um, again in chapter 12. But I'm going to go right into it. Once again, we're looking at Acts chapter 12. One of the powerful, powerful observations when it comes to the book of Acts, is that Luke's record of the early church is their exponential growth. It blew up in the first century. They go from 120 men and women detailed in Acts chapter 1 to a movement that has seen thousands of people from all walks of life rally around Jesus and making Jesus known. And the question that we have to ask today is why? What was so attractive about the first century church? And for me, for us, this morning's got to be more than just another sermon or answering a historical question. This has to be profound to our ministry and mission today. This is immensely important to Lord's Love Church and all the churches in Vancouver today. Now, Acts has a few key ingredients that we cannot neglect, and I know you've been walking through Acts, so I'm going to sum it up. I'm going to walk through it, run through it. For example, the warmth of the early church community in, described in Acts chapter 2 it didn't matter your gender, your age, your religious background, your nationality. It's clear that they treated one another as brothers and sisters. We could also highlight their radical generosity. In the ancient world, there was no social, no, no social service. And the vast majority of people lived below the poverty line, actually. Yet... Here were a bunch of Jesus followers that were loving and serving widows, providing support for children, looking out for those the world would have overlooked. Acts chapter 2 described that Jesus' followers sold their possessions. And I need you to pay attention to this. They sold whatever they had to give to the church, to give to the people. Man, there must be like 70 or 80 of us here this morning. I wonder what it would be like if we all sold everything that we own. And have you ever thought of that? Do you know how expensive Vancouver houses are right now? 
man, I, I'll use myself as an example. I live in a townhouse right now, three bedroom, 50 years old. Last I checked last night, it's worth $800,000. And never in my life would I think that I would own a home that's worth $800,000. But imagine if the followers of Jesus, as of right now, sold everything. Do you think your non-Christian friends, non-church friends, would go, what? Do you know how much money that is? I calculated with the worship team before actually coming out here. We have about 12 people. We realize if we all sold everything, we could probably pull together about $5 million. Guys, that's $5 million from 12 people. Could you imagine a room of this size? All of Jesus' followers sold everything. No wonder first century people were flooding towards this church community. Because who does crazy stuff like that? Who does radical stuff like that? Who would give up everything for this God that some of them have seen and some of them haven't? But as you unfold in Acts, people were being healed. Those who were being oppressed were being set free. Now, those things I mentioned are really, really good. It's very attractive when it comes to the early church. But do you know what historians often point to when they talk about the early church? It wasn't about their generosity. It wasn't about that they sold everything. Historians think and attribute that the early church, the mark of the early church was actually about their boldness and their bravery. In other words, the good news of Jesus made them fearless. That was what they were known for. Fearless. Fearless of a life where they lived in this radical generosity. Fearless in their commitment to serve the world and declare the message of Jesus. Fearless in their surrender, no matter the cost. British theologian Leslie Newbigin, reflecting on the persecution of the early church, says this. It's not the superiority of the church's preaching that disarmed the Roman imperial power, but the faithfulness, the faithfulness of its martyrs. This is what the unbelieving world found so unbelievable. Instead of just selling stuff, giving their possessions away, these Christians, instead of self-protection, the world witnessed the church doing self-sacrifice. Instead of despair, the world witnessed hope. Instead of fear, the world witnessed divine bravery. To, today, we're going to see this in the personification. This, and this guy named James, earlier Evelyn read the first three verses for you. 
There was this guy named James. Most pastors, when it comes to this passage, they talk about Peter's miraculous escape from prison. But this week, I want to talk to you about this guy named James, who is only mentioned for the first three verses. First, James, as we know right away, in the opening chapter of chapter 12, he got killed for his devoted love for Jesus. And then, because of that, they arrest Peter also. They put him in prison. But it was because of James. Now, he's not the first martyr that was recorded in the book of Acts. A couple of chapters earlier, we have Stephen who was stoned. So turn back to there. Read about it because it's a crazy story. But James's death rocked the first century church. In fact, James's death, as you read in chapter 12, was what perpetuated Herod to think, you know what? Now I'm going to arrest Peter. Peter, the guy who Jesus declared, on this rock I will build my church where the darkness of hell cannot overcome it. Peter, the very first century, he's known to be like church leader in the first century because man you don't get any better than this when Jesus himself goes hey I'm gonna build my church on you everybody else is gonna be like oh okay he is the dude that church is gonna surround themselves too so when Herod arrested Peter man I'm getting goosebumps It happened because James was martyred. And Herod thought, ha ha, I'm going to take over. Rock your Christian world. You think you guys can blow up, don't you? I'm going to arrest James. Killed him. Historians think he was beheaded. That's not a children's Sunday school type of teaching. Hope there are no kids in here. That's what perpetuated Peter to be arrested. Because Herod got into his head and was like, you know what? If I can kill James, destroy your Christian leader, I'm going to destroy Peter too. See what your Christians can do when I arrest two of your most prominent Christian leaders. See if you still would blow up in your faith. So that's what Herod thought. So this morning... Acts chapter 12, we're going to look through verse 1 all the way to um, verse 3, <laughs> verse 4 actually. Um, and I will have a few headings. I'm going to jump around to the whole chapter still. But let's look at Herod. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, this is what Luke records for us. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. So James was not the only one who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. So Luke already knows that Herod was arresting people. By the way, if you and I were in the first century, we wouldn't, half of us probably wouldn't be in this room because to sign up to be followers of Jesus, you were pretty much signing up for your death warrant. You were pretty much going to go to jail. That was a normal thing for them. They were being persecuted. As the church grew massively and crazily, 
Christians were well known in the first century for being persecuted. And here is why. We have this guy named Herod. Now, who is Herod? Because you often hear about his name from Jesus' time all the way to to the book of Acts. But we know their family was fairly well known. Because Herod, the Agrippa, who is mentioned here in Acts chapter 12, comes from a family lineage of violent, violent rulers. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember him? Some of you who did like seminary, you should remember him. Herod the Great was the one that was ruling during the time of Jesus' birth. And I tell you, this is a violent family because Herod the Great is the guy that decides to kill all the kids that were two years and under. Remember when Jesus was born, the Magi came to meet with the Herod, and Herod was like, who is this king that you're looking for? And they were like, it's a baby. And then he's like, you know what? Kill all the kids that are two years old and under tonight. Tonight. And so an angel appeared to Joseph, Mary. Hey, you got to fled. You got to run. This is Herod the Great, the grandson of Herod the Agrippa. And then there's Herod the Antipas. Herod the Antipas, if you didn't know, is the uncle of Herod the Agrippa. He's the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded because his wife, they were having a party. And then his wife is like, hey, what, what, what kind of present do you want? And she wants, I want John the Baptist's head. So he orders some guy to cut John the Baptist's head off, present it to her at the party. You hear how violent and messed up this family is, right? And then we have Herod Agrippa, who comes from this family of violence and control and power, and hence thinks is okay to just arrest Christians and persecute them. Persecute being an understatement. It's not a good combination when you have people with power that are violent. That's not a good combination. The first century was like Vancouver in the sense that many people actually didn't like Christians. And so many political figures in the first century would persecute Christians just so that they can be politically popular. The authorities are threatened by the momentum of the church. And as you heard, church is blowing up because you've got Christians left, front, and center selling their possessions, giving to the poor, doing social service here and there. And telling stories of miraculous wonders and signs all throughout the book of Acts. So they didn't have Twitter, right? So they would go from one place to another. Oh my goodness, did you hear? Did you hear this morning? The guy that was lying at the temple, he got up? What do you, what do you mean he got up? No, the guy that walked, he got up. I mean like Twitter, you can today like tweet and then next thing you know, millions and millions of people will read about it. First century didn't have Twitter. They would use their mouth. They'd be like, did you, did you hear about that story? A bunch of Jesus followers 
They're giving food out. What? Free food? Oh, I'm there. I'm there. So the authorities started to become threatened by, by the momentum of the church. And the pivotal point that is mentioned here is that James was arrested and was killed. Mentioned in verse 2. Now, up until Acts chapter 12, the early church had been on a streak of winning. They were on fire. They were experiencing one exciting thing after another. Their church blew up and it spread like wildfire because everywhere they went, they were talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. They were demonstrating wonders and signs. So everywhere they went, people were like, I want a part of Jesus. I want to be a part of Jesus. I'm so excited. But what the author of Luke, uh, what the author Luke is eager, eager to highlight here in chapter 12 is that Herod wanted to destroy the Christendom in the first century. So he arrested church leaders, prominent Christian leaders, hoping to destroy them. But you and I already know. Man, Herod, who are you in comparison to the God that we just sang this morning? You already know. You see, politically, Herod and his crew, they were starting to lose power because people were starting to flood towards these people that were called Christians. People wanted more of Jesus. They wanted more of what they were doing. They were amazed and perplexed at the sacrifice that these Christians were making. Now, this is going to be really important for us. Because when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to the instrument for being his purpose, for doing his purpose and doing his plan, what matters most, what matters most is how dedicated and how far you are willing to go. Christians, when I was growing up, were referred to as Jesus freaks. And you and I don't like that word. Because it means we're weird. We're different. And half of you wonder if we have blended so much into the world we don't look nothing like Jesus and rather more like those that are unbelieving, unchurched. I wonder if Christians have been so afraid for so long world. I wonder about that for Jesus, in the gospel of Matthew chapter 10, told his followers, there is no special protection for you for following me. But that's kind of what we want today. That's a gospel we preach, including myself. Hey, if you want to follow Jesus, he'll turn your life around. He'll heal you. He'll bless you. He'll give you this and this and this. When in the first century, Jesus says to his followers in Matthew chapter 10, hey, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. 
I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You're going to be persecuted. And I find myself repeating this statement these days a lot to my young adults and to my teens. It's not a matter of if. It's actually a matter of when. You're going to face hardship in life. You're going to suffer if you want to truly follow Jesus. And I'm going to say that one more time. This is not an easy pill for us to swallow. If you want to truly follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be made fun of. You're going to be the outcast. Jesus already told his followers. You're going to be persecuted. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You get that metaphor, right? Matt Chandler, who's another pastor in the States, has this beautiful quote that I want to read out for you today. He says, comfort is the God of our generation. Comfort is the God of our generation. So suffering is seen as a problem to be solved and not a providence from God. Now this is the first distinction I want you to make. We have been in the midst of the pandemic for two years and the church is struggling. The church everywhere I go is struggling. It's hard and you can't deny that. It's been really hard for the past two years. Not being able to meet together, not being able to fellowship together, not being able to be in a community has been hard. But I want you to hear this because this is extremely important. Instead of just asking for God to deliver you, not that that's a bad thing, instead of just asking for God to heal you, not that that's a bad thing, at times when you pray, consider this, that it's not about praying so that your suffering and your pain and your hardship would go away. I'm going to say that one more time. Don't just pray so that your suffering will end. Rather, pray. Pray so that you will remain faithful despite the suffering. During the pandemic, I came across a song that is written by the really well-known Christian band called Mercy Me. They have a song called Even If. And inside that song, these are the beautiful lyrics that they sang out in the chorus. Here's how it goes. I know you're able and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. Now, if that does not make Jesus beautiful, I don't know what else does. Isn't that remarkable? 
It's not that, Jesus, can you take away the suffering? Can you take away the pain? Can you take away the misery right now? Is Lord, help us to trust in Jesus despite the hardship, despite the suffering, despite the persecution, despite the pandemic, despite that we can't worship together. Help me to worship you, Jesus. Despite the circumstances that go up and down in my life, help me to trust in you. Let's pray. Jesus, may you be glorified even if dot, dot, dot. Do you know how hard it is to pray prayers I'm about to wrap up. I'll invite the worship team back up. There's a great quote in the famous novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. I had to read that book in high school, and it's been a number of years since I've read it. read it. Not sure if the BC school system is the same where you have to read To Kill a Mockingbird if you want to, please pick it up. It's an amazing book. But here's Atticus Finch, the narrator's father, a lawyer, who has been asked to defend a man named Tom Robinson. And Tom is a black man in the deep south facing an all-white jury for a serious crime that he did not commit. So tension and opposition against Finch He holds his ground. He stands for justice and truth. And there's this great moment where he's talking to his young son, Jem, and he says this powerful, significant words that I'm going to read out for you. Atticus Finch says this to his son. I wanted you to see what real courage is. Instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his head, is when you know you're licked before you begin. But you begin anyway and see it through no matter what. This morning, we've got James recorded in the book of Acts who knew that Herod was after him. In fact, it was so well known in the first century, as I mentioned, that being a Christian was like signing a death warrant. Being a Christian, they knew Herod and opposition were mounting their case. He knew, in the words of Atticus Finch, that they were licked before they even began. And yet, he does not stop him. He does not retreat. James does not sugarcoat. He does not deny his allegations with Jesus. He holds his ground even to the point of death. And that's my reminder and question for you here this morning. Are you actually satisfied with this nominal Vancouver life where you go to work, you go to school nine to five every day for every week for months on end, just like the pandemic? Two years have gone by. Your life is still kind of the same. I'm asking you, 
are you satisfied this morning? Don't you wish, don't you wish, that including yourself, we were more like the Christians in the first century in the book of Acts, where they weren't scared, they weren't ashamed of Jesus, where they pray and they believe and power came. You have that same power. Last week was Easter. That same power that conquered the grave lives in you. And I know that because Jesus promised us the Holy Spirit would come. So church, this morning I'm asking, I'm asking a very simple question. Don't you want to live for more? Don't you want to be filled by the Holy Spirit so that when you go back to school, when you go back to work, when everywhere you go, people are not just going to see you, but they're going to see the presence and the power of Christ? Don't you long for healing? Don't you long for something more? Don't you long for having a faith like James, where even in the midst of persecution, where in the midst as he's about to get his head chopped off, that he can go, Jesus, this is all for you. I'm not scared. I'm not scared. You're only a human being. Do you know who my father is? Don't you wish you have that kind of faith? Church, I wish we can be bolder, more courageous. Because the only thing stopping us, the only thing stopping you, the only thing stopping our church from becoming more like the book of Acts is you. It's you and me. We're not willing. We don't want to. It's, it's too scary. Man, to, to, to rely on Jesus and not on myself, that's way too scary. I don't know what's coming. I like control. So the question this morning I have for you is, do you want to? Are you willing? It's not rocket science. It's really not rocket science. So church, would you join me in prayer? Father, I wonder what today's church, if we were to be written in historical books, how people in the future would describe us. What will we be truly marked by? Is it our generosity? Is it our unconditional love for people and you? Is it the mark of suffering, that will be people known to be suffering for Christ. God, one of these days when we look back into 2022, 2021, during this whole pandemic, 
going to seem like a flash. Now this morning, we were able to dive into Scripture in the book of Acts. One thing that marked, marked the whole chapter, the early church, was the Spirit dwelling in them. So God, we can't do this by ourselves. So Spirit, I'm going to ask, and may you come and dwell in us, empower us, grant us that courage, even as we leave these doors, that we'll be bold enough to talk about Jesus with our family and friends, relatives, co-worker, even just what we saw within this past week, how we were at church yesterday. God, may you ignite some of these conversations so that we can share your story for your glory. In Christ's most powerful name we pray, amen.